I think the Lord is in this place today, and I think he's wanting to speak to our hearts. And so I don't know about you, but I really feel like if, as long as your heart and mind is open to the teaching of the word today, you're going to walk out of here with more than you came in with. And that is the goal. But I have a question for you as I get started this morning, and that is, of which of God's commandments in all of Scripture would you say is the most difficult for you to obey? Is it the commandment, do not lie? Because, you know, everybody gets in a tight spot occasionally, and we twist the truth just a little bit, and it seems harmless, doesn't it? Or how about the commandment that says not to covet when we really live in a very materialistic society? And it's all about the things that we have. And frankly, if I look around and somebody next to me seems to get a promotion or buys a new car or has something else, it's the old keeping up with the Joneses idea. We live in that materialistic society. It's a hard thing not to covet. Or maybe it's Jesus' command when he said, do not lust, when frankly we live in an incredibly sensual society. I understand there's an awful lot of talk about a new movie that's out. And you talk about pushing the line and where we're at and why men are struggling so hard. Maybe that's a hard one. Or maybe it's one of Paul's commands that he said, do not grumble. Do everything that you do without grumbling. I know some of you thought your spiritual gift was complaining, and you're trying your best to maintain that. But I'm going to tell you, it's not a spiritual gift. Now, we've been in the midst of this series, the 100 days or 100 readings, if you will, of the essential Jesus. And I trust that you've been reading along with us because we have an awful lot of those books that have gone out, and I'm hoping they're not dusty. But if you're just starting or you haven't, this week we'll be reading readings number 71 through 75. It's entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus, and that's what we're going to examine this morning. So you can pick that up. If you don't have a book and would like one, you can stop by the media desk, and they do have some more that are left. They're normally $10, but if you can't afford that or feel like it's too much, then just tell them you want the gift. But we encourage you, because the reason for this is that you make the connection and the importance of. We've been singing about one specific person today, and that is... Jesus, the name Jesus, and that's what this is all about. So we're really exploring many facets of the essential Jesus. I want to take a look with you at one of the hardest sayings that Jesus made. It's very simple. We quote it quite often at many funerals. I've used it myself, but we've never really expounded upon it or taken the time to dissect it piece by piece, and consequently, because we've translated it from the Greek to Latin, from Latin to the English language in about 16th century with King James, and then from there into modern languages, and we have over 250 different denominational, if you will, or, or, or references of the Bible, and I hear different people saying, well, I like this version better than that version. Sometimes we lose the translation because we put our cultural understanding to the English words. And so I want to take the next few minutes, and I want to expound on 15 verses out of John chapter 14, where Jesus is teaching his disciples and he gives them some very important truths. In fact, he presents three problems, and he gives three solutions, and he ends it with a command. Are you ready? I am. So here we go. One of the hardest sayings that Jesus made was a commandment in the very beginning where he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. That presents a problem. Because that word troubled really encompasses a number of things. Could be anxiety, could be fear, could be worry. I probably hit just about every one of us in this room. But let me give you some examples in case you're saying, no, that's not me. You know, we could have some heart trouble or be troubled by things like potential war. I mean, ISIS is on the threat again. Terrorist attacks are out there. Political corruption, that doesn't happen in our society today. Crime and violence. I've noticed that every time I turn on the five or six o'clock news, the first three stories that come out have to do with some kind of crime or violence that's happened in our region. 
And if that doesn't get us, how about economic pressure? It seems like things are getting tighter. Oh, excuse me, I forgot. They lowered the gas prices again. But it seems to fluctuate up and down, doesn't it? We're enjoying it right now. But if that doesn't create trouble, then we seem to live in the world of what ifs. What if I get cancer? What if I'm in an accident? What if one of my children dies? What if my spouse leaves me? What if I lose my job? Or if you're a student, what if I lose all my friends and I'm rejected at school because we know that peer pressure is a huge thing? It's an awful lot of what ifs. In fact, experts tell us today that we live in what's called a cardiac age. Everything seems to stem itself to heart trouble. The pressures that we face, the stress that we're under, all kinds of things seem to affect our hearts. Now, those are some scenarios that may be very large or maybe what ifs. You may say, I'm living in the real world today. Well, let me say this might get your heart going as well. You may be a single mother wondering how you can be a good parent and how you can provide. You may be a parent or a grandparent trying to raise a heavily rebellious child, and you're wondering what to do. How do I make it work? Perhaps you're one of those that's living paycheck to paycheck, and financially you're finding that it's really tough. And there are times you get a little worried, and every time somebody comes up here and talks about taking the offering again, you want to make that declaration, but you feel like it's so tight, and you want to trust, but it's hard. Maybe you're a student standing on the verge of you're about to graduate from college, and you've got all that loan debt, and you're hoping you get a job that's going to take care of it, because our society's changed a whole lot. Or maybe you're facing chronic health problems already, and you're in the midst of it. Have I hit any one of us in this room yet? Yeah, that's what I thought. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is if your heart is troubled, if you're feeling confused, overwhelmed, frustrated, well, let me tell you something. Not only are you in good company, but you came to the right place this morning because we're going to pray for that today. We've done some of that already, and we're going to confirm it. Because what happens every time in Scripture, if you take a look at it, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the spiritual giftedness that Jesus gave through many of the apostles where they came out, and we talk about that even within the shape class, you realize that all of those are meant to be support gifts to be able to open up the teaching of the Word for us to be obedient to what He has for us. Because without obedience, many times, the healing doesn't stay complete. It's just part of what happens in Scripture. Well, the disciples also face this, because here's what happens. In this particular uh, gospel itself, in John 14, Jesus is looking at the disciples, and he says very simple, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, they themselves were troubled because they'd been following this guy for almost three years. He's at, he's at the early age of 33, and he's about to turn up over the world. And they've been excited because the things he's been talking about is setting up a kingdom and, and ruling and reigning with them forever. And they're excited about that because they've been under Roman oppression, and they wanted to be released from that. And so they're thinking somewhat selfishly. And all of a sudden, they're hearing Jesus talk about things like, in just a few hours, I'm going to go through something that is incredibly painful. In fact, I'm going to be leaving you. And I've been talking about it all along. And they didn't quite understand that. It's easy for you and I to, to, to grasp that. But in that particular place, they were very troubled. Their hearts were heavy because now suddenly their master is declaring that he's about to leave. Jesus is about to give them a heart-to-heart -heart talk of encouragement. When he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled, it's pretty hard to have somebody preach at you when they don't understand. But Jesus did. In fact, if we'd have been doing a study all the way through the book of John, you would have seen that in chapter 11, Jesus' heart was incredibly troubled. That word troubled, by the way, comes from a Greek word. It's entitled terasso, and basically it means incredibly heavy to the place to where the anxiety is too much to bear. Now, Jesus understood that. 
They use that word. John uses that word when he talks about Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. When we know that we say, well, if Jesus would have just been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Jesus' heart was heavy. The second time we know in John's Gospel, chapter 12, when Jesus is facing the cross, when he's in the garden, and he knows what he's about to come up against, his heart was troubled. And the third time he's pondering it, just as he's about to speak to his disciples right here, when he said, Judas has just betrayed him. His heart was heavy. So for Jesus to say to the disciples the very same thing that he himself is having to do, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So that's the problem. So what's the solution? Well, think about it. Just the way it's phrased, do not let, implies first and foremost that Jesus has given a command that we have some control over. Now, I don't know about you, but what do you do when you're anxious? What do you do when you're, when you're incredibly worried or fearful or frustrated? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you encounter that? I would hope that you would say, oh, well, of course. The answer is very spiritual. But I'm going to be with you. I've driven on Peach Street next to some of you. And I know it's not the first thing that comes out. It's usually the horn, you know, or some other aspect. We build up this anxiety, and what do we do? But here's what Jesus says. Listen to this. I don't know about you, but it's like I'm waiting for this magic bullet. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled, so what am I going to do? He mentions it in eight little words. You believe in God. Believe also in me. That's it? It's that simple. It's belief. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus said, you've got to believe. Now, in case you're wondering what that means, well, of course, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Okay, let's go on. Just like the interpretation of what the Spirit gave to Pastor Jason this morning in regard to the wells, there's a little bit more meaning than what meets the eye in this belief. What Jesus is saying to them is, you believe in God for the big things. You know now, and he's speaking to his disciples who, if you will, are believers, are saved, are in the fold. And so he's telling them, this is how you get through the anxiousness, the troubledness. You believe in God for the big things, but do you believe in Jesus to trust him for the day-to-day things? Here's what happens. The disciples faced it, and we're about to find it with two of, the, two of them that were there. And you're going to see as we unfold this just a minute. But it's just like us. We come in here, and it's very easy to be able to worship and to feel. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And the emotions of being able to come down and empty ourselves and let our wells be redug and go with that is incredibly awesome. But what happens when we get in the car and we pull out? Mentally, we go right back into secular mode. And what he's saying is, you believe in God Believe in me, too, for the daily things, the little things. I am firmly convinced, and I'm guilty of this, okay? I am firmly convinced that you can tell how spiritual you are, how spiritual you are when somebody cuts you off on Peach Street. If your initial reaction is just like Jesus, who is nice and peaceful, then you're real spiritual. If not, we've got some work to do. Now, I will tell you, I don't let anybody cut in front of me. Because, you know, if you give that, you know, one car length for every 10 miles an hour, you know, everybody pulls in, especially if you're coming up Peach and you're in the left lane and it's time for the movies, okay? And my wife will look at me and she say, why do you do that? And I found myself saying, I don't know. <laughs> I just get so intense sometimes. Now, I'm just being transparent, okay? Because I know some of you do the same thing. But nevertheless, what Jesus is saying is you've got to trust in the day-to-day things. Listen to this. His word says, you must believe me that I will never leave you. You must believe in me that I will never stop praying for you, Jesus said. You must believe that you have my sympathy and understanding. 
you must believe in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We understand that now because when Jesus went away, he sent the Holy Spirit. The disciples didn't know what that meant at the time. What he basically was saying, not, not if you have heart trouble, when you have heart trouble. When we all encounter that, it's simple belief in the right object, Jesus Christ, and he will sustain you. So therefore, I'm going to tell you, believing leads to seeing. It doesn't work the other way around. Well, just let me see it. No, let me tell you. Jesus also knew that the disciples struggled with the very fact that whatever we gaze at, whatever we look at, that's what we seem to focus on. Motivational speakers know that. Multi-level marketing people know that. I mean, I've, I've, I've encountered some of those things over time to where they say, hey, just whatever it is you want in life, the bigger house, the nicer car, whatever it is, get a picture, put it up, stare at it, and that will motivate you to get pressed through with whatever you're doing. Get a, get a small size of you, and you know, that way it'll keep you from eating that big burger and fries, right? It works every time. Not necessarily. But I will tell you the way we're made encounters into the second phase, and it's verse 2. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Now, here's another misnomer. We've heard this many times. There's a mansion that's been prepared for me, and I'm going to go there. But this particular scripture says, in my father's house are already all the rooms. We're thinking, well, Jesus was a carpenter. He's there. He's building it for us. And those of us that love working with wood, boy, we've designed exactly our house. It's going to be in, in oak and lined out and all kinds of It has nothing to do with that, folks. We have missed that in the church. What he's basically saying, in fact, if you really think about it, we're not going to be sleeping in heaven. We won't be going to the bathroom. So that eliminates half your house. <laughs> and so we get this nomer, this idea going. You know what I'm saying? But what he says is this. Understand it this way. In my father's house... Or in my Father's place are many rooms, and I'm going to go prepare it. Now, we think that preparation is like, I'm going to go the maid and make up the bed and set up the, the, the nice smell in the room and light the candles and put the chocolate on the pillow. That's not what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years. What has he been doing? He says, I'm going to go prepare, because at that particular time, it's prior to him leaving. The preparation that Jesus made for you and I, for us to be in his presence, is the fact that he died for us, he resurrected, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that's where he is. And he says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you. So let me tell you something. Jesus has promised an awesome eternity. And I look forward to it. How about you? Now, that being said, I can remember when I was, I got, I came into the fold and gave my life to Jesus at age 14. Now, I'm going to tell you, the only thing I ever heard when I was a 14-year-old is going to heaven was that we were going to stand around in white robes and sing. Now, that really excites a 14-year-old. Now, you know, we, we, we don't know because, I, I mean, we've seen pictures painted. Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. And so we've got to trust him. Well, we tend to think of what we're gazing at as, as to, to get our excitement going. Now, let me give you a personal example of that. In 78 days from now, I'm going to be taking our 7th and 8th graders to Washington, D.C. Now, this story pales in comparison, but maybe it'll give you the point. I have some 8th graders, and I've noticed that year after year, it gets a little bit more so that the kids feel like, oh, I don't know if I want to go on that trip. Is it going to be any fun? It's all history. History's boring, isn't it? And so I feel like I have to do the salesmanship. Part of what we do here at 4th and 8th grade with our classes 
Fourth grade, we study state history, Pennsylvania. So I take them for three days. We charter a bus. We go down to Harrisburg, to Philadelphia, and to Lancaster, and we give them that. So in eighth grade, we go to Washington, D.C. And in the five days, we see 32 different things. Take them to the White House, take them to the Capitol, take them to you know, Mount Vernon. We do all this stuff. Now, when I sit there, I've been on this trip, and I know what they're going to encounter. I ask students when we get all done, what did you like best about it? And they'll just go on and tell me about all the stuff that we did and we had a good time. Do you know part of why we have a good time is because they have leaders that are passionate and excited about what they're learning. And we're making the connection between history with his story. We're making the connection from what's happening in our nation to the fact that God blessed us in the first place and that God had a plan all the way along. And we couple it with the kids. And when they see that, they realize that it's not boring history. It makes sense. And so what I do with them is I, as I paint this picture and I say, I've been there. Now, I've been doing it. This, might, this will be my 16th year to take them from this school. And I encounter an awful lot of students that have graduated, and I'll see them in the malls or somewhere else. And they'll come up to me, and they'll say, oh, Pastor John, you know what I remember most about school that was so fun? Now, they're saying that because they're seeing me, because there's other things that they like. They're saying, I remember my eighth grade trip. I remember when we went to Washington, D.C. I remember how exciting it was. Now, that's the way we're supposed to be about heaven, folks. We're supposed to realize that I may not fully grasp it. I may not fully understand all that we're going to see and all that we're going to do. But Jesus is saying, I want you to discipline your mind to think about the glories of heaven. And there's a reason for it. Because what we're gazing at is what causes us to act in a certain way. And what Jesus is saying is, I want to get rid of your heart trouble, and I want to get you moving on into, into greater things. So here's where he goes. The guarantee of heaven. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, you know how I am about numbers. Some of you have seen me before, and you, you know I love to do this, so I'm going to give you a little statistics. First of all, I'm going to tell you, in the Old Testament, there are 1,800 references to the return of Christ. 1,800 in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? There are more than 300 references to the return of Christ. That means out of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, one in 30 verses talks about Jesus coming back. Not his first one, but Jesus coming back. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament will give prominence to the subject of Jesus' return and coming back for us. If that's not much of a guarantee, I don't know what is. In fact, do you know that for every prophecy in Scripture that was given regarding Christ's first coming, there are eight talking about a second, that means it's an eight-to-one ratio, the fact that Jesus is coming back. Pretty good odds, don't you think? And we need to be reminded. Now, I know, I know, I know. Some of you have lived a lot longer than I have, and you're sitting around saying, I've heard Jesus is coming back my whole life. Well, you know what? One time, somebody's going to be right. <laughs> and once they are, boom, we're gone. And I don't know about you, but I want to be ready. And we have enough parables that are in, in the world. In our fallen world today, we can absolutely gain relief from the, very, excuse me, from the very fact that our troubled hearts can get to that place that Jesus said, I've not only gone to prepare something for you, I'm coming back and I'm going to take you with me. That's encouraging. And that's part of what we sing about. Well, he goes on in verse 4 and he says this. I love this. And you know the way with the place where I'm going. Now, first of all, he says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place. And this is what's going to happen. And I'm going to come back and get you. And he says, and you know the way. And I love what happens. It's, it's, it's like that carrot. He dangles it out there and he says, I've been telling you all along. I've been saying things to you that you don't fully get. And when now it's about to come to pass, 
the disciples are sitting there going, well, wait a minute, what do you mean we know the way? So look at what happens. I love this. Almost before Jesus gets the word out, I can just see Thomas. He just blurts out and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? Can you just see that? They've spent three years with Jesus. He's instructed them. He's walked it through. And what are they thinking of? They've got this myopic idea of he's going to make it all happen now. He's going to make it happen now. And we're all going to be good. And we're going to be great. And everything's going to be wonderful. And that's what you and I do. That's what I do. There are times I'm thinking, oh, it's all about my living a great life. And frankly, Jesus says, no, I want you to think a little larger. Look a little bit more than just your own world. And that's what he's doing to them. And that's why he says to them and to you and I, he said, you know the way where I'm going. Presents a second problem, doesn't it? That second problem is to the disciples, they're saying, wait a minute, our destination, our destiny is unknown. I, I don't get it. In fact, Jesus said, you know the way, and Thomas is immediately contradicting him. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think it's a good idea to contradict God. It, it might not serve in your best interest. So if he said it, and that settles it, and that's all there is to it, and you're contradicting him, what does that say about you? What does that say about me? Well, it says that the very thing that Jesus goes on just before he does this, he says, you know what? Thomas knew the facts because he'd given it to him. Thomas was unconscious to the facts, and he never utilized the information. I heard Pastor Don talk about this last week, and I just want you to know it's an absolute great educational principle. The old idea that if you don't use it, you lose it. What do I mean by that? It's a big difference between attending church and growing up in the church and growing up in Christ. I would hope that you've been growing up in Christ and not in the church because you have a knowledge of God, but not a knowledge of God directly. Why do I say that? Because look at how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, Thomas, you have no clue. He doesn't say to him like he did to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He basically responds in verse six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this saying has been known really as the Christianity scandal because everything filters through this. And frankly, when people say, and we live in a society, you know exactly where we're at. And this is what really excites me because we are living so much closer to the end times. I mean, I don't know how much longer it can go, but I'm, Jesus probably is just really excited to just get up and waiting for the Father to say, go. Because frankly, you look at our society, it's gotten darker. And there's so many people now that are saying, well, there's so many different ways to get to God. Nope. There's only one. There's only one, and that's through his son. And it all hinges on John 14, 6, and it's right here. Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the truth of all we find in the Father. And Jesus is the life that is given by virtue of the fact that, he have, that we have access to him and the Father. So if the problem is my destiny is unknown, what's the solution? Well, it's to know the destiny. Aren't you like it that I filled in your blanks already? Some of you are doing that because I want you to pay attention. Let me go on. If he is the known destiny then, he says that we can only have this relationship with him and that's the only way to get to the Father. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is our destiny involves two things, a place and a person. The place. Now this is what will really surprise you. Maybe, maybe not. Some of you, if you've done some study and I talked to you and I told you about Blue Letter Bible before, if you want to know, you want to confirm it, don't just take what we say up here. Go research it for yourself. But if you just take and read through the Bible in an English translation and take it at face value, you're going to miss an awful lot. 
And that's why God takes within the body and, and equips pastors and teachers to be able to expound on that. But let me tell you what he's saying right here. The place. Did you know that any place the Father is, is heaven? Any place the Father is, is heaven. Any place the Father isn't, is considered hell. And the only way to get to that place is through a person, and that's through Jesus. It's that simple. It's belief in him and understanding that. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes you think, this is so elementary. Yes, it is, but we don't always live out our obedience with the elementary things. And we need to go back to the very basics of what it's all about. Well, Jesus continues in the response to Thomas in verse 7. He said, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. He says three times in this verse, he uses the word know. There is a Greek word for that. doesn't really matter. You're not going to memorize it. And you're not going to write it down. So I'm not going to tell it to you. But I'm going to tell you, the word know is defined as a personal, intimate relationship, not a cognitive knowledge. That's the difference. You know you have a knowledge, but you haven't made it move 18 inches down to where you know. That's why I think Jesus told the parable, the difference between the sheep and the goats. He says there are going to be those at the judgment seat that he's going to look at, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're going to say, what do you mean you never knew us? We cast out demons in your name. We healed the sick. Or we, we, we fed the, 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 those that needed it. We clothed those that, that needed it. And Jesus is going to say, get away from me. I never knew you. You had a cognitive knowledge. I mean, yeah, you had a cognitive knowledge of me. In other words, you were trying to be very religious. But what Jesus wants more than that is an intimate relationship. And what he's saying, and keep in mind, he's saying this to save disciples. He's saying, you don't really know me. Because if you did know me, you'd know the Father. It's that old principle, we've seen that before, like father, like son. And, and if you've ever seen it, you know, sometimes it's, you, you see that relationship when you look at somebody and you go, wow, he, he looks just like his father. He acts just like his father. That's what Jesus was doing, is he was saying, first of all, you're not going to see me. Well, there's a tag team approach that happens with these disciples. First, Thomas, who's doubting Thomas, which really isn't a doubting Thomas. And if you've taken my shape class, you understand that, that he's a classic high C personality and has to have proof and everything. Remember, Thomas is the one that says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side and feel a scar, I can't believe because he has to have proof. And some of you have to have that. But that doesn't mean he was doubting. It just means he needed cold, hard proof. But just as he finishes up and Jesus very nicely and gently says, but, but Thomas, I am the truth. I am the way. And if you really knew me, you would know this. Well, then we get Philip. We don't hear much about Philip, but Philip's one of those that he jumps right in and he says, but Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Now he's just got done saying to the disciples, if you knew me, you would know the Father. And Philip basically stands up, takes one foot out of his mouth and puts the other one in. And he's saying, just show us the Father. I think the reason he did that was to show our third problem that you and I wrestle with as well as the disciples, and that is, with a troubled heart, we need concrete evidence. Because you know what? We want to see it first, and then we'll believe it. Because that's what we do here. You know what? The proof's in the pudding. Just show me. You make it happen. But when it comes to our relationship with God and the Father, he said, no, I'll give you proof after you believe. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believed in God. Now trust me for your day-to-day -day things. And when you do that, it will all make sense. Now, I think what Philip forgot is that no one gets to see God. 
As we know in the Old Testament, Moses asked to see God. And God says, you can't. It's humanly impossible for you to see me. So God told Moses to stand around a rock as God walked by for him to see the, the, the after effect of his glory. And so it's the same thing here. So what happens to us? Let me tell you what happens when we don't see it. I see it all the time. People come to church and whether or not they get in or whether they, they didn't like the music or they didn't like Tyler's beard or they didn't like something about what's going on, okay? And they, and, and, and they said, I got nothing out of that service. And then you realize, I'm picking on you, sorry. <laughs> and, and you got nothing out of it and you walk out and you go, well, you know what? If God was real, he would just show himself to me. And God says, all right, when you're done complaining, when you're done in your own self-pity, then I'll be here for you. And he does that over and over again. I just need concrete proof. And I've seen it in people all the time. I say, well, I just, you know, I pray, but I don't get it. I pray and I don't get it. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The reason you don't get it. But what he's saying right here in this particular part is that I've got to have concrete evidence. I've got to see God. And when I don't see him, what I do is I create an idol. I've got to have something I can focus on. And yet Jesus says, no, if you want to, you want to experience beyond your level of pain and problems, then you've got to go farther. I want to share with you, and I didn't put it in your notes, but I want to share with you just a couple of verses that, comes, that Paul wrote out of Romans chapter 1, and starting at verse 18, and it reads like this, and I put it up on the screen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since it, they may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that the people are without excuse. Goes on, listen to this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. You really want to be enlightened. I challenge you as well. And in fact, I encourage you, go read the rest of that chapter because he goes on to describe exactly the society we live in today, how people have perverted everything that's out there and they say, well, I'm a Christian and I can do X, Y, and Z. And that's not the case. I'm going to tell you, we demand proof. We seem to feel like we need that concrete evidence. But look at how Jesus responds to Philip in verse 9. He says to him, don't, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father's in me? The words I say, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, he goes on and adds one little thing. Look at what he says here in the last part. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. I like the way Jesus does that because he gives a little bit of solution. He says, first and foremost, you want concrete evidence. You don't believe that I've been doing that? Well, then look at the works that I've done. I think the reason he's doing that is that sometimes our faith just isn't strong enough to make that leap. And he says, okay, you need proof? Look at what I've done. Look at what I have done. Look at all of the incredible things. You get people in the world today that will always say, you know, Jesus was an amazing man. He was a prophet, no doubt about it. But I'm not quite sure if he was the son of God. Ah, wrong answer. You stop short. 
Because the only way it's going to really happen is to acknowledge him. So what Jesus is saying is, here's the solution. I am the perfect image of the Father. I am the exact replica. I am just like my dad. So believe in me. And if you can't do that, at least believe in my works. Well, he closes this section like I'm going to close, believe it or not. This, where he talks about something having to do with fruitful ministry and Christ's kingdom agenda. And it's meant to comfort them in the midst of their troubles. Of all the things that we've gone through, in verse 12, he says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Now, Pastor Don covered this a little bit last week as well, and I'm not going to contradict him. We're, we're in, in agreement. We go right along the same side. But I want you to understand what he's saying here when he says, greater works can you do than what I've done. Now, I don't know. I don't find anywhere in the Gospels or anywhere else in all of Scripture where the disciples turned water into wine. I don't see any place where they fed thousands with a sack lunch. I don't see any place where they raised the dead. So maybe we've put our own connotation on this and we've twisted it. We don't quite understand it. That's exactly what's happened. He says, you're going to do greater things in effect and to an extent. The extent is that they were limited to Palestine and to that immediate area. The disciples reached out a little farther to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts. And nowadays with where we're at, because of what the Holy Spirit has done, Jesus went to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, who gave us power to be able to do things. And so they were able to do what he meant by greater things is greater in magnitude. The effect meant that more people would come to belief in Christ. And the effect would mean that more would be placed into his church. You know the story. We heard it last week as well, and I repeat it for this. Peter, the impetuous Peter, who loves to jump out of the boat and think afterwards. All right? Peter was the one who, after the Holy Spirit came on him, stood up, and 3,000 people got saved. Five times the number of believers in that day. Five times in one day. How did that happen? Not because of Peter. It was because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happened. That's what Jesus is referring to. So what is he saying? He says, it's not about your own problems. It's not about the struggles that you and I face. Yes, we're going to face them. And yes, they're very real. And it doesn't mean we just do this name it and claim it and move out. Because he said, no, it's much more than that. Believing is seeing. And we've got to step out. Here's the thing. When you go through something, when you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling discouraged, you got to stop and think about what is the kingdom work. I, uh, I've run into this quite often, and, and I've learned. I didn't learn it at the first time. In fact, I probably learned it maybe the 12th or 15th time. What do you do when something happens, and, you, and you're all of a sudden faced with a crisis that's hit you, and you're not sure how to handle it? I know. We're supposed to stop and thank Jesus for this problem, right? If your car breaks down, what do you do? Well, thank God my car broke down. No, we usually get rather upset. We think about all the things that we should have done or could have done or whatever. Did you ever stop and think that maybe there's a mechanic out there who is praying that God would feed him? Did you ever stop and realize that your problems are an opportunity for God to bless? Just because you got a problem, woe is me, doesn't mean I should sit back and think about it. And that's exactly what he's saying. So when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, he says, don't be thinking all about me. Oh, well, I prayed about this and then nothing happened. You know why it didn't happen? You didn't have a kingdom focus. You didn't think of it in terms of, this world is temporary, folks. 
the problems we go through. I can think about the amount of times I've faced crisis in my life 10, 15 years ago. I don't worry about that anymore. It got solved. So why should I make that any different than what I go through today? You follow me? Now I'm preaching to myself as well, not just to you guys, because I got to live it. But what I'm telling you is when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, he says, how do you handle it? Well, the first thing I do is I start talking to everybody so I feel better. It didn't solve the problem. What you need to do is talk to him. What you need to do is quote scripture. What you need to do is thank him because that's where he takes us to the next part of this. And in verses 13 and 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now I've put in your, in your notes, and I don't have time to go over it, and I wasn't planning on it for the sake of, of, of time, but I've put in your notes. Many times if you're trying to understand scripture, we take one verse of scripture and we misquote it. And I've got to tell you, you've got to take Scripture in its context. If you're going to meditate on something, and if you're going to quote a Scripture over and over again as though you're holding it up to God saying, God, you said this is what you've got to do, God's going to say, well, you know, you're going to find out it's a little bit different than that. So here's a portion of Scripture that he doesn't say, just ask whatever your little old heart's desires, and it's going to work. you got to line it up with Scripture. And I've given you eight. There's many others. Ask it in my name. Keep on asking. If you don't see it right away, you keep on thanking him for it. It's two, agreeing it. Get with somebody else. Believing without doubt. And number six just kills me. Not selfishly. Well, you know, God, I deserve this. And God's going to say, do you? I mean, I've raised kids. You guys have raised kids, some of you, most of you. And you understand. And, And there's a big difference between the kids coming in and demanding you do something for them Versus you coming in and asking. And that's what he's saying. Keep his commands. You've got to be in the word. If you're not in the word and you're wondering why, you're taking scripture and you're quoting it and it doesn't apply right. And you've got to ask according to his will. And when you're walking in that, what he says, I'm not a magic genie. That Prayer is the, is, is the rubbing of the lamp to get this thing going. You want to know why you don't have answered prayer? There's probably sin in your life or there's something that's holding it back. And if not, then he says, it's not timing yet. Just wait on me. If you ask according to his word and according with the kingdom focus and you realize, as Jesus said here, keep in mind, he says, ask in my name that you will do it so that the Father may be what? Glorified. So does your getting your little need answered glorify the Father? If it doesn't, think about it. Now, I know I'm, I'm stepping on toes. I don't care. All right? It's just the way it is. The last thing, two observations that I will say on this, and that is context, context, context. Keep it in that. Let it be specifically related to ministry and the works of Christ. That's when it works every time. I've seen it. When you pray according to his plan, his will, his word, when you're attuned to that, it's like us being an ambassador. When I take these kids on, on the D.C. trip, as I mentioned earlier, down, there's 256 international countries represented that have their ambassadors here. That little spot of land is their country in our land. And those people represent their king, their ruler, their president, whatever. If they don't say what he wants, they're out of line. If you and I don't pray what he wants, we're out of line. Do you realize that? And that's why sometimes when we pray selfishly, I can tell you that even when we have times down here and we pray for people and they come up and they tell us, 
Sometimes the Holy Spirit will reveal to us what is wrong and what needs to be done, but sometimes he doesn't. I know of one person that told me one time they were praying for people to be healed, and a lady came up to be healed, and the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, no, you've got this particular sin in your life, and I'm not going to heal you of that physical deformity until you get rid of the sin. She went and did that, came back, they prayed, she was healed instantly. I can tell you, it just works. Jesus set it up. So why have we got it so convoluted? I'll tell you why. Because of the three problems I just mentioned. We really, we try to put God in a box, and God says, I'm not making it very difficult believe in God, believe also in me. And if you believe in me, you're going to do greater things than you even thought possible. Well, let me wrap it up. And I want you to say it with me, will you? Believing is, leads to seeing. Let's say that together. Believing leads to seeing. I hope you believe that. Jesus ended this in the next section with the first verse. He basically looked at his disciples, which he knew they loved him. And they said, if you love me, Keep my commands. Now, when I said commandment at the beginning, you probably immediately thought of the Ten Commandments. And they say nowadays that only one in a hundred people today can quote the Ten Commandments because we don't necessarily live those. But there are all kinds of commands throughout Scripture, and Jesus gave them here if you really want that. So I want to ask you something in light of what we've already heard today and with where we're at. If you found yourself this morning, the Holy Spirit really spoke to your heart because you've been troubled by something. You've had heart trouble. Something's been bothering you, anxiety, fear, or worry, and you're having a tough time with it, and the Holy Spirit spoke to you this morning, and you want to be free of that, stand to your feet, because I want to pray for you. The second thing I want to challenge you with is if in the past you've ever struggled with heart trouble, anxiety, fear, worry, trouble, and you never want to get there again, and you want prayer for that, stand to your feet. Now, I want to pray a prayer over us. The rest of you can stand as well. God sees that. Many times he leads us to a place to where the word is preached, and he says, now what are you going to do with it? If it was a good word, a good message, good whatever, it was well articulated, it doesn't matter. God says, I'm not interested in that. The question is, did it challenge you to the place of obedience? Are you going to walk out of here and you're going to say, I believe in God? The big question's been answered. But are you going to get in your car and you're going to drive out and you're going to go on Oliver and down to Peach or wherever you go, and are you going to believe in Jesus? Are you going to believe in God? Are you going to say, Lord, I'm, I'm a work in progress? And the next time you encounter a problem or a frustration or a tension, and the anxiety starts, that's normal. He didn't say that you're going to get rid of that. He says, what are you going to do with it? Our knee-jerk reaction is in the flesh. I, I, I got I to tell somebody. I got to have somebody agree with me. You got to just pray about it. And, and, and have scriptures that you memorize, that you meditate on, that allow him to be able to speak to your heart, that encourage you, that keep you going. Because it's not a one-shot and done thing. It's an ongoing. If it was... We would get people saved, lead them to Jesus, and kill them. It doesn't work that way. He says, you get saved, and then I want you to go play nice until I come back. So what's the plan? What's the purpose? The purpose is, is that sometimes what we go through, and I'm going to tell you something, character is never built when everything's going right. Character is only built when everything's going wrong. It's through the troubles. So the next time you encounter that, and I want to pray for you, that 
you will take this life application. I put it in your notes. Number one, by your standing, you're going to trust God when everything within you wants to worry and stress. Number two, you're going to be motivated by adopting an eternal perspective. Think about our heavenly home. Where are we going? What's it going to look like? I don't know. They tell us, they tell us people have been there and come back. I don't know if I believe them, but it doesn't matter. All I know is Jesus said he went to do it, and he's going to come back, and it's awesome. Number three, you're going to believe that God wants to accomplish greater works through you so that his Father would be glorified. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word that you gave to your disciples in John chapter 14. I thank you, Lord, that even this morning that we have all experienced some aspect of heart trouble, and we've been anxious, and we've worried, and we've been fearful, and we've been operating in the flesh, and we're sorry. And so, Lord, just as we heard earlier today, our wells have filled up with all kinds of junk, and you redug them today. We're going to go out of here today, change people because of the very fact that your word has told us that. And as we have that internal perspective, as we continue to put the level of teaching and understanding of your word into obedience, and we're going to live it out, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd give us the strength to be able to do that, that we may be doing greater things than what you did because your Holy Spirit is flowing through us. And we want to do this to the praise of the Father. And so I pray your blessing upon each of these in this place today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you're in agreement, say amen. amen. God bless you. Have an awesome week.